Welcome to Wildwood College Life of Wildwood Community Church in Norman, Oklahoma. We are four following Jesus together to the glory of God. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9.45 for Bible teaching, breakfast, and fellowship, and would love to see you there this week. Follow us on Instagram at Wildwood College for more information. And with that, let's dive into this week's message. Uh, welcome to Sunday College Life. If this is your first time, welcome. This morning, if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in 1 John 3, verse 10 through 24. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for that reason did he, and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Verse 17. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth, and we will assure our heart before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I just ask that uh, Lord, you would be glorified this morning, that above all things, you would be honored, that uh, the words that I speak today would be glorifying to your name and would be truthful and honoring to the word that you've given us. Uh, Father, I ask for your protection and I ask for, uh, Lord, your Holy Spirit to move uh, in the midst of these students here this morning. Lord, I ask um, that as we read the words that you've given us through the Apostle John, that we would be changed by them, and that we would be motivated to live out its truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, guys, uh, just so you guys know, I'm so glad you're here. Who's excited to just dig into the word and just be, oh man, yes, yes, the head nodding. I'm so excited. Um, if you guys don't know who I am, I'm Kevin Choate. I'm the college pastor, and we've been going through a series on First John. Now, I want to do a little quick test. Who do you guys think wrote First John? Anybody? Come on. I need some crowd participation today. John's right. Hey, five points for Aaron. Good job. John, the Apostle John, who was brothers of, he was a brother of who? Does anyone know? James, right, James. James and John were fishermen and were called by Jesus to be one of their, 
to be disciples of Jesus. Um, now, another quiz. What were the nickname? What was the nickname of John and James? It's the coolest nickname in all the Bible. Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder. Yeah, they were the sons of Zebedee, but they were known as the Sons of Thunder. Do I know why? No, but it's a cool nickname. And uh, John, he, he contributed a lot to what we have as our New Testament today. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the Gospel of John. He also wrote Revelation, okay? So he participated a lot in giving us a lot of great um, truth, and he's got a unique style in which he writes. It's kind of uh, very thoughtful. He calls himself the beloved disciple for some reason, so I don't know why he does that, but... Uh, I wanted to just give a reminder of what the three focuses of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are, okay? So f the, the three main pillars of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is focusing on the importance of love, which we're really going to get in today, obedience, and doctrinal truth, okay? And just so you know where we've come so far, uh, we've talked through 1st John chapter 1 and chapter 2, and the first message we talked about how... Um, we talked about how God is light, right? The first two chapters really focused on that theme, that God is light, Light, and our first two sections discussed this reality. The first week, we talked about how fellowship with God leads to a holy life. And last time, Callahan talked about how our outward actions reflect our inward reality, okay? Now, today we're kind of transitioning into a new section of 1 John, which focuses transitioning from God is light to now God is love, okay? And we're going to be talking about that specifically. Um, so, so we're going to be talking about the reality of God is love. Now, I don't know about you guys, but as a Christian, sometimes it can be confusing what our priorities are, right? There's uh, feeling like we need to stand up for truth, there's feeling like we have to win any theological argument that we come across. There's a feeling of making sure to take back America for God. Uh, there are all these priorities that Christians today are concerned with, right? Whether it's even things like making sure that we're comfortable, right? I don't want our religion to be tampered with, or I don't want any of our freedoms to be stifled because it's comfortable, and then there's other things that are like sacred cows, things that are tradition that we just do because we've always done it. And all of these things can kind of cloud our priorities on what is the role of the Christian in this world and how do we live. But I hope today that we can be reminded of the life that Jesus has called us to live from the very beginning and be reminded that our love for one another is the thing that separated us from the world. From the very beginning, the thing that differentiated Christians from the world was their love for one another. There's a lot to unpack, but the main idea this morning is to love one another, okay? You guys might be thinking, oh, that's such a simple message. Well, it might be simple, but in practice, it's very difficult. It's very difficult because the world has told us to put ourselves first, but God is telling us to put ourselves last, in a lot of respects, putting others' needs, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we'll see that because of Christ's ultimate example of love, we should daily live out that sacrificial love toward our brothers. And we're, we're going to be reminded of this truth by seeing the marks of loving one another this morning, okay? And these are the marks of loving one another, okay? 
Christian brotherly love is marked by what it isn't. Christian brotherly love is marked by the example of Jesus. And Christian brotherly love is marked by the assurance it provides believers. Now, do we have any movie buffs in here? Anybody love movies? Yeah? Yeah, Chris. Okay, who likes war movies? Anybody? Yeah? Okay. Who's seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? Anybody? Okay, it's a classic. It's a classic. It's got Tom Hanks and Matt Damon. And basically, to set up the plot of the movie, um, it, takes pl- it begins with the Battle of Normandy in World War II. And there are these two brothers who die in the battle. Well, the, the commander gets the report of these two brothers who have died. And the sad thing is a third brother had died in New Guinea. But there's four total brothers. The fourth brother is played by Matt Damon, okay, man? And he is Private Ryan. Ryan is in, Private Ryan is in a very dangerous location, and to retrieve him would be very, very risky. The costs, are, um, the costs to, to retrieve him could cost the lives of whoever men goes and save him. But the, ca- the captain decides that they have understood an important aspect of what it looks like to be in the military. And that's the principle that maybe you guys have heard. No brother left behind, right? No man left behind. And so these men, to retrieve Private Ryan, they organized this uh, small battalion of eight men. And uh, I think his name's Captain Miller. I could be wrong. But Captain, uh, yeah, Captain Miller, he's played by Tom Hanks. He leads a small group of eight men to retrieve Private Ryan. Ryan, to save him, and they have no idea if this guy's alive, they have no idea, they have no communication with him. But as they organize this group, this group realizes how dangerous the cost is to save him, and they have these mixed feelings. But at the end of the day, they all choose to risk their lives to save their brother. They all choose to risk uh, whatever comfort they have, looking out for number one, because they believe in their cause. They believe in, in the reality that if they were in Ryan's position, they would want someone to save them, right? Now, as the film progresses, you know, despite the fact that they're uncertain of each other, uncertain of the mission, one thing becomes really clear. These men are brothers. They have no blood relation, but in action, Indeed, the way in which they talk to one another, they are brothers. In Private Ryan, what's really interesting is that nobody in the battalion knows this guy personally. Nobody in the battalion knows this guy personally, but they're willing to die for him. They don't know him, but they're willing to die for him. This battalion, in the face of likely death, put their mission ahead of their own self-interest. And the question we have to ask is why? What caused them to risk their life to save their brother? Well, at the end of the day, he wasn't just some stranger that they didn't know, but this stranger was their brother. This stranger was their brother. What's remarkable about this movie and the reason why it resonated with so many people is that people were blown away at how these men were willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of their brother. Now, what was so unique about the brotherhood the military had cultivated? What was so unique about it? Well, 
people would say it was unlike anything that existed in the world. No other group of people would make those kind of sacrifices that these men made for each other. But just a few centuries earlier, if you had looked at the state of the church, the thing that separated it from the rest of the world was their radical, sacrificial love for one another. And I think that's something that we need to redeem today and be reminded that it is not merely a collection of people who agree on the same topics, but they are brothers and sisters united by the blood of Christ. And the way in which we treat one another should be marked by the sacrifice that Jesus himself laid out for us. So let's read again 1 John 3, 10 through 24 with the backdrop of this sacrificial love. It says this, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay, our do- lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For, whoever, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now, as we begin, it's important to note that the point of this section, the goal that John is trying to teach us is found in the first two verses that I read, verses 10 through 11. So let's look at those. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So what is John trying to communicate in this section? Well, it's really simple. Christian conversion is evidenced by Christian brotherly love. The way in which we treat one another is evidence of a changed heart, okay? And that's really what John is trying to communicate as he goes into this long passage that Christian conduct is primarily evidenced in loving one another, right? That we should love one another. To John, he wanted his reader to know that Christian conduct was evidence of Christian conversion. As he writes this opening section, he identifies that your practice determines who you're identified with. Your practice determines who you're identified with. In other words, you are of God or of the devil 
based on the way you live. This isn't talking about the state of your justification, but it's talking about your actions. Are they animated by your flesh or are they animated by the spirit? And if they're animated by the flesh, you are of the devil, meaning you are progressing his agenda. But if you are living by the spirit, you are of God and you're progressing God's agenda. See, the same could be true if you went to the Red River rivalry and you said, I'm an OU fan, right? I'm an OU fan. But every time Texas scored, you cheered. Or instead of wearing crimson, you're wearing ugly burnt orange. And when OU starts to do good, you start booing. And even though you might believe in your heart that you are an OU fan, the practice that you have displayed shows that you are for Texas, right? And just like last week, our actions reflect our inward reality. So even though you might say you're an OU fan, your actions indicate that you're being animated by a love for Texas, which I don't know how you could even get there. But this message that you have heard from the beginning that he's talking about isn't an unusual thing, right? This isn't something that's brand new or something that these Christians have never heard of, but it's something that was true from the beginning. Let's see John 13, 34 and John 15, 12. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. John 15, 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. So we've got a confusing statement, right? Because it says a new command I give you, but John is saying that this is a command that's been from the beginning. Well, we also read that Jesus says that the law is fulfilled by these two commands, love God and love others, right? What is the new aspect? The new aspect is loving each other as Christ loved us. So it's not according to our standard of love, but it's according to Christ's standard of love. It's not about doing the bare minimum, but it's about asking what is the way in which Christ would love in this instance, right? That's a different way of thinking about love. See, this message that John is giving isn't new. It's not something he came up with. It's something that Jesus came up with. Now, John is about to walk through some things some things that are not Christian brotherly love, right? Talking about Cain, talking about Abel, talking about all the bad stuff that happened with that. And so this is the first point today. Christian brotherly love is marked by what it isn't, okay? So John begins by talking about what it isn't by providing an example from Genesis. And this is the only time he, he references the Old Testament in this section, or in 1 John. Verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, if you're following along, put a star by this verse, okay? Because it is the primer for the next verse, and it's an example for what he's going to say in verses 14 and 15, okay? So this leads into verses 13 and verses 14 through 15. But let's go back for just a second, because here in verse 12, we see by referencing this story, he's setting up an argument. 
But I want to talk about what is an important lesson that we can gather from this. If this whole section is about Christian love and John is identifying what love isn't, then why would he reference something that's not necessarily hatred at first, but starts with something small? Because why did Cain murder Abel? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. It all started with a small little emotion that maybe some of you guys have experienced. Envy. What happens to these negative emotions that go unaddressed, unconfessed, and hidden? They can turn into something sinister that we never thought it could. If we don't handle these emotions these things that um, are against our brother or sister, then it can turn into something and we could walk, in, walk down a path we never thought we would walk. Maybe you've said, man, I don't know how someone could do that. Well, the thing is, that person never thought they could too. But it transformed over time by unconfessed and unaddressed sin. Guys, we are fallen. We're in need of God's grace. And so how do we address these negative, sinful uh, feelings toward our brothers and sisters, these petty arguments, these petty disagreements? Well, we look at the example of Christ. And how did Christ forgive us? Every sin that we transgress someone else, that same sin has always transgressed God. So every single one of our sins might be against a bunch of different individuals, but they're all against God. Yet God, if you've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, has washed your slate clean. And so if he's radically forgiven us, then we can radically forgive others. This verse shows us what love isn't, but it's a primer, right? I said that. Let's go to verse 13. Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you, okay? And so here the point's clear. Cain is the representative of unbrotherly love, right? He's the representative of unbrotherly love. Therefore, if Christians are to be righteous as Abel was, then the world, which is unrighteous, is like Cain. So if we're unrighteous, and unrighteous people's response to righteousness is hatred, then we can't be surprised that the world will hate us, specifically for living a righteous life. The unrighteous respond to righteousness with hatred. That is basically what John is saying. He's not, if you live a righteous life, you will be hated, but he is saying that that is a response to which you shouldn't be surprised if it does happen. Now, this is uh, testified multiple times in the Bible that Christians, if they're living out their faith, will face persecution for their faith. They'll face persecution not because of their politics. They'll face persecution not because of the color of their skin necessarily or their ethnicity, but they will face persecution based on the mere fact that they are following and identifying with Christ, okay? Don't let those little devils distract you, okay? Verse 12 plays out in verses 14 through 15 too, okay? We know that we have passed out of death into life, and this is, this is an, another symbol. We talked about light and darkness being a symbol of righteousness and sin. This is out of our old ways into our new ways. That's what he's saying there. Because we love the brothers, 
Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, at first glance, this passage might be a little confusing because you might be thinking, wait, if I, excuse me, if I hate a brother, does that mean I lose my salvation? Is that what it's saying? Is that what it's saying when no murderer has eternal life abiding in him? Well, no, that's not exactly what he's saying because notice that he says abiding in him. There is a unique evidence that is presented when we are abiding in Christ versus abiding in the flesh. The mere fact that we live in this world, we experience dual natures, being of the spirit and being of the flesh. And so if we are, uh, by our actions, by our thoughts, closing off the spirit by our wickedness, by pursuing sinful desires, then we, can, we are not abiding in the eternal life provided through Jesus Christ, right? We're not abiding in the reality of living in our new created self that Paul talks about. And that's really what John is trying to get at, right? Brotherly love is motivated from the heart, and that testifies to a changed heart, okay? And so that's, that, this whole section is talking about living in the reality of your justification, if you have been justified before Christ and you have been declared righteous, then live righteously by loving your brother. And when I say brother, it's, it's, it's brothers and sisters, okay? That's just a, a simple shorthand here. It says brothers and si- sisters. Hating your brother is in direct conflict with a regenerated heart. You have to stifle the truth and stifle righteousness to be able to get there. And this statement by John, it's not uncommon, right? He's echoing Jesus once again. Let's look at Matthew 5, 21 through 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, and here you fool is is a he says raka, which is like a really insulting term in the day. Okay, so here, what is Jesus saying? He's saying that hate of a brother equals murder, and this is similar to a lot of the commands that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, where he is elevating the standard not to the mere action, but the heart motivation behind the actions. Right. Lust is equitable to adultery, right? That's what he said in a previous section. So it's all about the heart. Jesus cares about the heart. A true Christian that is abiding in Christ can't, by their new created nature, destroy life. Hatred is incompatible with spiritual life. Tom Constable describes it like this. John evidently meant that no Christian whose eternal life, i.e. Jesus Christ, has control of him, and is walking in fellowship with God, will commit murder. That's essentially what John is saying. If you're living out the truth, and if you're abiding in Christ, you're experiencing fellowship with God, then murder is not a reality that can exist. Hatred is not a reality that can exist. Because if you're hating, you are in contrast to the created life that God's given us. And this is something we have to wrestle with, okay? This is something that we have to wrestle with. Last week, Callahan focused on the foundation that John is building here. 
Can you be a Christian with hate in your heart? See, our outward actions reflect our inward reality. If you have hatred in your heart, what is the appropriate response? What is the appropriate response? The second example of what the marks of Christian brotherly love are is it's marked by the example of Jesus, okay? Now, the question we have to ask is how do Christians define love? Because in our culture, there's a lot of different expressions or definitions of love. There is brotherly love, right? Like how you love your brother. It's a little weird sometimes in America because we often don't like our siblings. Um, There is romantic love. There is acquaintance love. Ah, I love you, man, right? There is I love pizza love, right? There's all these kind of different types of love. So when we're saying all this, we have to have the proper definition of love. And we define love in this context, our love for God and love for others, by the example of Jesus. And this is what John says, by this we know love, they laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So in verse 16, it really starts to talk about what is the example or the expression of how we are to love. So it's transitioning away from what love isn't to the example of Christ's love. Now, as we read this, we're thinking, oh, so we're supposed to be a martyr for our brothers. We're supposed to take their place and die for them, or we're supposed to be in their place. Well, If you break down the language, what this is essentially saying is that our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ is to be marked by sacrifice. Not not only in the moment when we die for them, but it is to be marked by sacrifice. So the question that we all have to evaluate in our own personal lives is, do I elevate my needs... Do I elevate my desires above that of my brother? Do I elevate my comfort, my wants even, above my fellow brother's needs? And this is really the the point, that Christian brotherly love is marked by its sacrificial nature. Now, verse 17 takes it a little step further, and it takes basically the logical conclusion of, okay, if brotherly love is marked by its sacrifice, What happens when we see a brother in need? Do we close our heart against him? And if we do so, how does God's love abide in him? If an outward expression of the inward reality of a changed heart is evidenced by our love for one another, then how can that be true if we see a brother in need, a tangible need that we can fill, and we close our heart and say, Someone else will take care of it. That's the government's job, not mine. That's the church's job, not mine. I hope someone else will take care of this problem. Even though you might have the means, even though you might have the time, even though you might have the money to be able to help someone, helping someone in need is an expression of that inward reality. Furthermore, in verse 18, we see an evidence of that genuine love, right? In verse 18, it says this, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So how is this genuine love expressed? Well, it's not expressed by a theology of love, but it is expressed in an actualization of love. Do you hear me? 
It's not expressed in a theology of love. It's expressed in an actualization of love. Genuine love is manifested or realized in substantial, real, actual service, not theoretical theology. There's a quote from Greville, uh, Greville Lewis, and he said, guys, this was so convicting. I want you to look at this quote. Take a picture of it. It is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everyone in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Is that convicting to you guys? It's convicting to me. I hope that I don't have a bigger love for capital H humanity than real humans that are in my path. Real people who, who are supposed to be my brother and sister, and I treat them like a stranger. Treat them as less than. Christian brotherly love is manifested in substantial service, not theoretical theology. Here's the reality when it comes to loving our brother. We love God by obeying him. We love others by sacrificing for them. We love God by obeying him. We love others by sacrificing for them. Christian brotherly love is marked by what it isn't, by the example of Jesus, but it's also in the assurance it provides to the believer. I won't spend too much time on this, but essentially, obedience leads to assurance. Despite a guilty conscience of maybe being more, not being more righteous, we should be reminded at the end of the day that we cannot base our righteousness solely on our actions. We can base our righteousness only on the person and work of Jesus Christ. We can base our righteousness only on the fact that he has covered us with, our, with his righteousness. It is no longer our righteousness that God views, but Christ's righteousness. And what is the result of living in that obedience, living in that reality of his righteousness? We can approach God confidently. And this is echoed not only in this passage, but also in Hebrews. Let's go to the Hebrews passage. It says this in response to how we are to respond, respond to God in prayer. Let's, let's move a little, I think it's a little bit further. The Hebrews passage, I think it's Hebrews 10, 21 through 22. It's not in there. I'll just read it to you. Hebrews 10, 19 through 20 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Okay? And this is a reality that John will say in John, 1 John 5 as well. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. 1 John 4, 5, 14 through 15. So, essentially, he's ending this section by saying that the way in which we live testifies to the reality that we have the Spirit within us. 
It testifies to the reality that we have a changed heart. And that changed heart, when we're abiding in Christ, living according to his will, can give us confidence in our prayers, right? Whenever we ask prayers that are according to his will, we can approach God confidently in those areas. This is not a name it and proclaim it. This is not I'm manifesting this reality. This is not a prosperity gospel message of asking whatever you wish and it'll be given to you in a selfish way. But this is when you are abiding in Christ with the undergirding of obedience, which is how this section ends, it is foundational that abiding in Christ is revealed in our obedience to him. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. So, I am praying that you guys would be a generation that would not, as Paul says in 1 Timothy, that would not have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil, suspicions, and constant frictions. Instead, I pray that you guys would be marked by Christian brotherly love, the kind of sacrificial love that Christ himself exemplified for us the kind of love that we can live out even today.